Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. This is Jon from Bukasa. You're listening to a Metal of Your Podcast. Welcome to Not Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. And this is episode 226. And uh, we're talking to an awesome, awesome dude named Kevin Erickson, who is from the Future of Music Coalition. Yeah, he came on my radar because when the whole Twitch thing happened with Metallica, which as you'll all recall, hopefully, if not, you're about to get a big refresher course in this, but Metallica in February was performing for BlizzCon. They were doing a live stream and they were censored on Twitch for like a copyright infringement while playing their own song. So crazy. And the fallout of that became tying the, the same conversation and the same misunderstandings about Napster, about Metallica. Everyone said, well, that's Metallica getting what they, they deserve because they, because they started this whole thing. Yeah. Basically a bunch of bullshit. So what happened is Kevin came on my radar because he was being retweeted. He's, he's active on social media. This, yes. this company that he's the director of, the Future of Music Coalition. And uh, he he was just very clearly and succinctly sort of clearing away the bullshit, the right. cobwebs, the bullshit cobwebs. Which is, well, there's a lot of. There's a lot of, because A, okay, half, half of the explanation for that is generous. Okay, A, it's confusing. So, okay, it's, it's these things are confusing. And, and Kevin gets into that in our conversation about even some of the language surrounding what we're getting into today is deliberately confusing. So yes. there's that. Right. If I'm being a little ungenerous, I think people are um, people have a narrative about Metallica or Lars or about music, about piracy, about streaming, about Napster, and they don't really care to look for the facts. They no. they have an idea that they like, and they it doesn't matter what the facts are. Right. It, it, it's 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 almost like a, a, a clickbait kind of thing where it's just yeah. like Lars and Metallica hate their fans. Yeah. Metallica right. sues their fans. Well, what's the whole? Let's read the article here. Let's read the yeah. whole story. And Kevin did an amazing job of kind of breaking a lot of that stuff down, including the Napster stuff, and, and, and as well as the Twitch debacle. So he was tweeting about it, and I I was like really impressed with like his, the, the dissemination of information he was he was putting out in the Twitterverse. Yeah. And I reached out to at the time I didn't know him. So I reached out to that account and said, hey, I do, you know, I have the elevator speech for our podcast that I've given a million times to a million different people where I have to very quickly say, hey, I do this. We're we're we actually have listeners. This is a real thing. We're not in our parents' basement. Ma, the Milo. What is she? What does she do up there? Are you Uh, down here? Is Paul there? No, Bolt. Oh, Bolt. Bolt. He's definitely there. He's definitely in the in HQ. Is he up in the guest room? He might be. be Bolt. Bolt, are you up in uh, the guest room there? It's amazing that even when he snores, it sounds like when a man loves a woman. 
I was about to say, I hear faintly like he's like he's up there listening to his own records, which I, I actually find kind of admirable. He I, likes his own flavor. Well, he likes to you know he likes to learn from the past, and maybe maybe he feels he made some mistakes on certain records and stuff like that. But you know, he's just you know he's just going through his old catalog, much much like how Rick Rubin made Metallica do that for Death Magnetic. Right, you got, you got to get back in touch with who you were to figure out who you're going to be later. Exactly. All all that to say is that we know we can confirm Michael Bolton's next record is going to be a thrash album. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so anyway, I I, t- I got a hold of someone at the Future of Music Coalition. Turned out to be Kevin. I said I'd love to have you come on the podcast and talk about these issues. Kevin got back to me and said we'd love to. And then that's how we met him. So you know, the Future of Music Coalition is a Washington D.C. based nonprofit organization that supports a, and this is quote from their website a musical ecosystem where artists flourish and are compensated fairly and transparently for their work anyone who has been listening to this show who knows which by the way welcome to the show we're a metallica podcast if you're by the way this is you know we have so many listeners we're so lucky and uh and tens of thousands of people all over the world you never know if it's someone's first episode so we are an all metallica podcast ethan and i are two professional musicians we're, we're both songwriters and artists we're both touring musicians so the issue of compensation and transparency when it comes to streaming music has been a very important issue for us. And just sort of strangely and serendipitously, it, it collides with Metallica, yes. which is the band we talk about every right. week. My, my favorite band and your favorite band. I like, I like telling you what your favorite band is. Oh. Your favorite band other than Bolt, other than the well, Bolt of course. Band. I mean, I think that goes without saying that Bolt is, there, there's not even, there, there's, you know, there's not like really a category above number one, but he yeah. does hover up, up there somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the Future of Music Coalition, they work with musicians, composers, and industry stakeholders to identify solutions and promote strategies, policies, technologies, and educational initiatives that always put artists first while recognizing the role music fans play in shaping the future. Now, anyone who is has a nonprofit organization that spends their time dedicated to that cause, they have won my heart. They they are doing great work, and I'm so happy that we became friends with Kevin because I love what they're doing. So yeah. the way this is going inter- to intersect with Metallica, as we already sort of mentioned, is the, the BlizzCon debacle happened, and everyone – it was just a big media you know, frenzy mm-hmm. about Metallica. Uh, th- this thing called a DMCA, which is a Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, <clears throat> Metallica's sort of decades-long fixture in the conversation, dating all the way back to Napster. So – you know, we talk about his company, what they're up to, copyright issues in the modern age, the Twitch controversy, Metallica Napster, clearing up common and pervasive mis- misconceptions. And what I was most excited about in talking to Kevin were the most responsible and ethical ways to get music. Yeah. You know, we get we get asked we get asked that a lot, right? Of course, yeah. And yeah, people hit us up whether it's on social media or on Discord or whatever. But yeah, we get into that a little bit and get and get Kevin's thoughts on where he thinks you know is maybe the best place to support artists uh, on a financial level, you know. Um, and and we'll get into it. Hey, no spoilers here. Uh, it's Spotify. <laughs> no spoilers. Me and Kevin get engaged at the end of the episode. But other than that, I'm not going to do any spoilers. We're set to be married. Yeah, other than that, no. I officiated, but no spoilers. We're set to be married uh, later in the fall. Michael Bolton <laughs> sang at the wedding. It was great. <laughs> Michael Bolton will be there. Uh, let's knock out some news before we get into our conversation with Kevin. A couple of things have happened that are Kirk Hammett-centered. Sweet. First of all, Kirk Hammett's signed guitar from the one video is up for auction. The ESP 400. It's the one that looks like a Strat. Yeah. You know, it's like a oh, yeah. natural wood. We all have seen the video. But the video is black and white, so you may not be able to tell. Not sure of the color. It is in an excellent condition. Available to bid on through Heritage Auctions for a limited time. The current bid as of today, which today is April 10th, current bid $46,000. Oh, sweet. They got my bid. Great. 
<laughs> yeah, dude. Wonderful. I was nervous. It, it, I mean, it was only at like 10 bucks, and so I figured I'd really up it. Right, just to see what happened. I, yeah, I went with, you know, I, I figured right now we have our 46th president, so I thought, why not $46,000? Right. Well, I looked at the rest of the guitars like on this website and like they have some cool stuff. They have like uh, a couple of Eddie Van Halen, Frankenstein guitars. They have a Bruce Springsteen um, acoustic Martin, Sweet. but none of them are anywhere close to this price. It's like, this is definitely the most valuable one that I saw today on the website. I mean, I couldn't tell you maybe how much road time that guitar saw. I'm sure it did on the in the Justice era. But I mean, I don't ever remember him really playing this in the Black Album era. I don't recall seeing it live, but, but let's not let's not wake the metal police, dude. Of course, God. Yeah. I think they're tuckered out somewhere, like from all the meatloaf, and uh, they're sleeping it off. So let's let's. To me, this is a, this is a, a, a I would say a bit of an iconic Kirk guitar that absolutely is, is is a little mysterious because it was mainly just in the one video. But yeah, that, as we all know, that was their very first music video they ever put out for MTV, and so. This was our first glimpse into the band of like, oh my God, look at these dudes, you know? like Yeah, look how handsome they are. I know. Look at that mustache. Look how black and white uh, they are. <laughs> I, it's weird. I thought they'd be more colorful. Um, yeah, well, it's, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. And uh, of course, we'll keep you updated here in the news corner of mm -hmm. Metal Up Your Podcast. On April 9th, Kirk tweeted that he was quote unquote... Working on riffs. Working on some new riffs. Which is awesome, right? Because, the, you know, we, we don't get too far into this, but there has the, the, the smatterings, the rumblings, if you will, in the, metal up your, in the metal community, not even the Metal Up Your Podcast family, just in the Metallica world, was Kirk's obvious lack of creative involvement, involvement with the writing process of Hardwired. Yeah. And the issue of, did he, he had all these ideas on his phone. He says he lost his phone. James kind of took some jabs in the media at the time of promoting Hardwired, where he said, I'm not sure what the deal with that is. I think Kirk was actually going through some shit. He's like, I think he lost his phone. But uh, in, in fact, I'm going to read for, through some of this. We're going to sort of touch on that. But I did think it was interesting because we just heard in that interview that James did with the Fierce Life podcast that they'd already right. kind of done 10 songs. So when Kirk says writing riffs, is he just was he just tweeting that day? Was he just sitting around in Hawaii cranking some shit out and just decided to tweet that? Just drinking drinking some greeny coffee. Is he do is he writing riffs for more material? Is he writing riffs specifically for what they're working on now? Uh, like coffee riffs? Is he writing yeah, is he writing riffs full coffee? Maybe he's writing riffs for my next album. Kirk says, it's taken a couple of months literally for me to go through all of my ideas who's not credited on any of the songs on Hardwired. He says, I've got a wealth of material, and so at any given point when we all decide, okay, let's start formulating a schedule to start writing songs and recording it, I'm ready, I'm there from day one. And th this is an interview from like uh, around lockdown, like right around quarantine happened. Right, and, okay. Uh, Rob says, Kirk has so many ideas. It's funny because sometimes it's literally him in the kitchen and he's cooking, and at the same time he's playing you a riff, or you're sitting on the toilet and he's playing you some ideas, like maybe the way your crap jingle. <laughs> But when we started to understand that the lockdown was going to happen, it was like, hey, let's be creative. Let's just get on it. A lot of times when there's a band that's been around as long as Metallica has, you find that one of the biggest problems is, man, I can't come up with a riff. I can't come up with any good lyrics. It's just harder to write songs. He says, but that just doesn't seem to be the problem with us. Not taking anything away from other bands, but sometimes our worst riff might be another band's A-list riff. How about Rob speaking a little power, hey. speaking to the power of the band a little Dropping bit. Dropping a little truth there. Uh, hey, I don't disagree. I don't disagree either. I do not disagree. I remember, yeah, this is probably years ago at this point, it probably predates the podcast, but at one point I I tweeted something something along those lines, like all the metal bands in the world are trying to write great riffs, but James Hetfield already wrote all of them. Yeah, totally. You know? 
So this is kind of going back to the phone debacle, right? This is from 2016. This is Hetfield. He says, Kirk's riffs weren't there when it was time to write the music for the follow-up to 2008's Death Magnetic. He later seemed to dismiss Kirk's missing phone excuse, telling uh, a radio station, that's what he claims. I'm sure he did lose the phone, but it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't have had the music backed up on his computer either. He says, but whatever. He says, Kirk had some riffs that he, I guess, submitted. Uh, but, you know, we all submit our tapes. We all sit there and we listen to them and we pick the best stuff. There wasn't much from Kirk, whether his phone was lost or whatever. Yeah. In a separate interview with UK radio station Planet Rock, Hetfield said that Kirk, quote unquote, was not present in the studio while Metallica was working on Hardwired. This is James talking, saying he was dealing with life. James said he had a lot of life things going on for himself, which he'll choose to talk about if he wants. He says, but, you know, it was Lars and I steering the ship as usual, going through the riffs, creating the songs. And I got to do a lot of guitar stuff that I was missing around Death Magnetic. Some of the harmony guitar things, harmony vocals, a little more layering like the Black Album. Sweet. And that's him talking about Hardwired, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Because we've sort of long said that, you know, the 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 backbone of the Black Album is definitely definitely throughout Hardwired, for sure. Right? Oh, absolutely, for sure. I 100% agree with that. So there we go. Kirk's writing riffs. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it all means. Yep. But here's what I do know. And I tweeted this at Kirk. He neglected to respond, but I'm sure it's just because he wants to send me a personal handwritten letter later with like a quill pen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He, that's, a, that's more his style. But I said, uh, I said, Hey man, Metallica is always better when you're part of the creative process that, you know, Kirk's Kirk's part of their, their greatest songs. I love his creative input into mm-hmm. the band. So I'm excited to see what happens. Um, iTunes, Patreon. You want to tell them all about that crap? We have those things. If you want to leave a review on uh, iTunes, it does go a long way for us. I know it's a little mild gesture, but uh, it does help us get noticed more when you're in, in the algorithms of the world. In the algorithms of time. Algorithms of time. We end our lives as moles. We end our lives as iTunes moles. Yeah. If you want to leave the review, go for it. It's great. It helps us out. It takes a few seconds. If not, oh well. <laughs> Listen, we've had weeks where we tell people not to leave us reviews. So, oh well, oh well. I mean, it's true. Listen, you 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 can you can lead a horse to iTunes, but you can't make him leave a review. Well, you can lead a horse to water, Ethan, but if you That's teach right, a man, man to fish, you teach a man to fish, he'll swim forever. I tell you, my what, dad used right. to tell me that. Uh, the Patreon here's the cool thing about the Patreon you get a whole bunch of shit over there now the thing that's the most juicy over there right now is our part two of our interview with Mike Gillis which we've got an amazing response to our last episode which you know where we sat down with Mike who has definitely become a friend of the show part two is over there now and we're going to be doing a QA and a with Mike that's Patreon exclusive and uh, we're going to be doing deep dives into uh, Death Magnetic Lulu and Hardwired as we get to those albums so uh that's some of the stuff you get over there. The EPs, Zoom hangs, all that. So It's a good time. We did get some new patrons. I'm going to say thank you to three of them. Then you're going to say thank you to three of them. I would love that. Jake Nielsen, Panu Pitkamaki, Juan Cabrera. Tyler, Brendan Collins, and Andrew Townsley. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate the support. It really means a lot to us. I hope you're enjoying all the goodies over there. And, you know, the bottom line is if you think the show has value and you are willing and able, it's the right thing to do. That's, That's the right. right thing to do. We crank this shit out every week for Frizzle. Happy to do it for free. But the support means a lot to us, especially in the last, you know, 14 months Agreed. where we haven't been able to do what uh, what God put us on the earth to do, which was to play music and write songs about Satan in space. There you go. Speaking <laughs> of Satan in space. The, Ooh, lots I'm, of good news on the uh, or upcoming good news on uh, Lunar Satan. 
Yeah. So the vinyl is still in process. Um, my last update, which was a few days ago, was that there's one project ahead of mine. And I get it. It's just COVID, COVID made promises about um, shipping things just difficult. Sure. And I'm not really that bummed about it. I know that people are like really excited to get the vinyl. Believe me, I am too. Me too. In the meantime, I, um, in the meantime, I'm starting to ship out cassettes. So those are going out all over the world. It's super fun to be like, oh man, there's Lunar Satan represented in like 30 countries. I know, you know? like so awesome. It's pretty cool. Uh, and then of course, when the vinyl comes, everyone will hear that. I've been writing volume two, which is pretty exciting. And I'm going to release a single from volume two this summer. Awesome. Called Lord, Lord of the Vampires. I know this song very well. I did. Uh, for you, drum, for for you drummed on it. Yes. I did. Yes. I banged the drum that will not bang. People have been asking for a Lunar Satan shirt forever. The shirts are now available through Everpress. I call it the Devil Moon logo, which is just the cover of the album. Yeah. And uh, you can order it in any size you want. They'll ship it to anywhere you want. It's I think it's 22 bucks, which was as, literally as cheap as I could make them. Uh, we use this company called Everpress that we've always used. Well, we've used 85 Supply for some yeah. of it, but a lot of our shirts we did Everpress and Basically, they just take care of like they make the shirts and they ship out all the shirts and they deal with all the processing. It's a one stop shop. It's really the way to go. Yeah. And it just makes things easy for us. And we never wanted to make money off the shirts anyway. We just want people to have them. So, I mean, literally, I think we make like 80 cents a shirt. I mean, Clint, so, you, you know that you can't put a price on joy. You can't put a price on Satan. Now, <clears throat> I didn't even say that. I didn't even write that. I think that's like some sort of a papal document that dating back to, you know, King Pope Leo X. That's probably right. If you'll recall, was uh, during Martin Luther's time. Yes. yes, of course. Here's the deal. That's enough of that. Uh, Metal Up Your Podcast Show at gmail.com. We love hearing from all of you lovely people out there. And we got some emails. We're going to dip in. And then we were going to meet our friend Kevin and talk about <sighs> if the music industry is completely fucked or not. <laughs> <laughs> On a positive note, let's go to the email corner. All right, let's do it. All right, our first email is from our good friend, Marta. She says, guys, thank you so much for the sweet and funny video. What she's talking about is uh, we make these, another perk of Patreon is uh, if you're at the top tier, you might get some custom shit sent to you. That's right. We we sent out some like thank you custom videos to the top tier patrons and uh, just little five minute homages to these people that that really yeah uh, go above and beyond to support the show. So that's that, right. Yeah, that's what she's responding to. So she goes on to say that was so much more than I expected, and I truly appreciate you two finding the time for that. Uh, it was very close to shedding a tear. I'm so grateful to have uh, found this community and to share all this with you two. Counting the days till our COVID free side hugs. Lots of love, Namarda. Good night, Dark Continent. We are COVID-free side hug. We'll be in the EDM tent at fucking Burning Man. <laughs> we'll be in the EDM tent at 4 a.m. We'll be at the EDM tent at Burning Man. Bring a diaper. Bring a diaper and something to light the man on fire. <laughs> my only um, my only issue with this email from Namarta is that she said she was very close to shedding a tear. So no tear actually shed, huh? Oh, yeah. Like I'd read that You so almost quickly. cried? We didn't quite get to the finish line, did we? Maybe she was at work or something and didn't want to, you know, embarrass maybe her herself. Tear duct, or... Maybe her tear ducts were completely blocked uh, with sand. With you know, sand. It, or maybe the, she had sand in her tear maybe ducts. Maybe she had sand in her tear ducts. Or maybe she cried so much at the last episode, there was just no more, no more that's tears. Probably, that's probably what Ozzie. it is. In the, in the immortal words of You Ozzie. know that song's about dried up tear ducts, right? Thanks, Namarda. Andrew Belly writes in, hey, Ethan, Clinton, Paul, just wanted to Paul. wish you and your families a safe and happy Easter. You all deserve it. Thank you, Andrew. 
Hopefully now the warmer weather coming and it will signal the start of a positive time and you guys can get back out there. I'm assuming he means on the road doing what we love to do. And uh, he says, thanks again for all you do for the Metal Up Your Podcast family. It really is appreciated. Clint, our Metal Tales has been a big hit with my mates and I continue to receive messages about it. They all think you steered the ship beautifully. Again, thanks for making the effort to do that. I'm so happy we got to chat. Stay well and stay safe. Andrew Belly, Melbourne, New Jersey, Australia. And I'm glad it worked out too, Andrew. You know, I really want to try to make more time for the Metal Tales episodes as, you know, the, I, I love, um, I mean, we've done, I don't know, 75 of those. Something I think. like that, yeah. I, I love hearing everyone's stories. It does get difficult when we're doing the normal show and we have our our kind of lives that we're trying trying to run <laughs> right. um, during the week. I mean, the weeks just fucking fly for me. Um, we had our first soccer game today. And uh, it was like, my baby's growing up, man. Watching yeah. her play soccer like a big kid. She out there like Pele, just crushing it. Or is it like, or is it like most kids that are just there's just a big group of kids around a ball? It's a lot of reminding them not to sit down and yeah, you know, like don't sit down. You're playing a game now, right? Yeah, you know, like not to run over to talk to us and dance for us when she's the goalie. We're like, <laughs> you know, they're all six. It's like I really cute it. and fun. Yeah, yeah. They just do all the shit you see in the movies. Like it's totally what people do. What these kids do. Oh, they're like chasing a butterfly. It's like That's we're so playing awesome. a game. And amazing, too, how, like, you know, I'm pretty chill. I'm not a huge sports guy, and I just want my kid to have fun. But there is this little thing that gets unlocked in you when you, like, your kid has the ball and might score, and you want to win. And you're like, yeah. oh, yeah. Fuck those, fuck those other kids. You know, <laughs> fuck like, those other six-year-olds. Damn it. <laughs> screw them. <laughs> which, which, of course, I'm not saying. But there is this thing in you where you're like, I hate, like, there was a really good kid on the other team that kept scoring. Yeah. And I'm like, I hate this kid. What's his deal? He's Kick played his fucking ass before. Nova. <laughs> Uh, thank you for the email, Andrew. We are going to try to get more on those metal tales. It was just easier to do when the band was touring, you know? Yeah, totally. Now that the band's not touring, it's like getting on, you know, when we did the one with Wayne and Tom Dean, I mean, we were trying to get our schedules lined up for like three weeks and that, that gets exhausting. Yeah. I mean, when when the band was actively touring, it's like, we could set that stuff up before the show even happened. Right. It's like, oh, hey, you want to do, uh, whatever Dallas, Texas, you're going to the show next week. Let's do it the week after that. So it was easy. it, It had a built in framework based on the tour. Right. Um, anyway, uh, I do appreciate it, Andrew. I'm glad that you and your mates enjoyed that. Thanks for the nice email. All right, next one is from Brandon Cotty or Coty. Uh, hey guys, just started listening to your podcast a couple weeks ago. Thank you. I'm only on episode 34, but I'm loving it. I just heard you guys talk about what Metallica, what Metallica tattoo you would get. My goal is to get caught up to the current episodes in the next month or two. Then I sh- uh, and I should also have my Metallica tattoo finished by then to share. Keep up with the great content from Brandon. Well, there we go. We have a we have a tattoo to look forward to. We still haven't gotten our Metallica tattoos. Yeah, I haven't gotten a tattoo in a long. I haven't gotten a tattoo in maybe six years. So it's been about five years for me. I think my Rocky tattoo is my last one I got. I mean, maybe we should do one together and get Metallica. Why? That's actually a pretty good idea, isn't it? Maybe you mean we do it together and we get well, Metallica tattoos. Not that they don't have to match. I think uh, they don't have to match, but I think we should do it at the same time. That's what I'm saying. You want to do the same you wanna, trip? You want to, dude? If we speak it into life on this show. There's kind of no backing out. Like we're speaking it into reality. I mean, you want to do it? One of my close friends owns a tattoo shop about five minutes from my house, and we're both vaccinated as hell now. So, well, here, here's what I, here's what I'm thinking for me. Okay, I don't think I can get the word Metallica like on me. I just don't think I can do that. Right. But I can definitely get some imagery. So for me, it's like coiled snake. But I don't, I don't know if I like the sort of don't. What about sh- a star? The the M star. So the other thing would be the ninja star. Yeah. Uh, what about you? 
I'll probably uh, right across my chest get no life till leather. <laughs> you get, dude, no, I just figured it out. You, no life till pleather. You get no life till leather on your chest and I'll get, we'll kick some ass tonight on mine. Oh, and then dude. we can stand next to each other in our Hawaiian shirts without a shirt on underneath it so people can see our tattoos. Oh my gosh. So maybe, maybe a lyric, maybe um, like, you know, you're a big puppets guy, maybe like a little homage to the p- cover of puppets. Yeah. Maybe like a hand with, with like a, like the um, marionette strings, pu- marionette style thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I have to, th- I get to really think about it. I'm com- I'm committed to doing this with you though. Oh, I am. Absolutely. am for sure. And our, my friend Ian White, he, we run safe house tattoo. He'd be glad to do it. For you think us. maybe we could bring some mics and like do, do a whole episode, like while, we're, episode. while we're doing it. Probably. I think Ian, actually, the, the tattoo machines he uses uh, now, I think are all these ones that are super quiet, so it'd be... I wonder if we can get Paul to do it, too. Oh, my god, Dude, fuck it. What if we just get Bolt <laughs> tattooed? Like, we just get a Bolt with, like, a lightning bolt. Or just or just every couple months we get a podcast of reference tattoo, so it's literally <laughs> just a bolt. Everyone else is like, oh, that's a cool that's a cool lightning bolt. You're like, oh, no, 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 Dude, no, yeah. no, no. What if we had a that whole... Is, that is a Michael Bolton reference. What if we had a whole Metal Up Your pod, Podcast-themed sleeve, like... That's a, um, uh, you know, the cannibal tow truck company. That's a Torben on a fucking flying carpet. That's a right. that we have new, the state of New Jersey. We have the oh, outlaw man. torn. What else do we have? I mean, we have fucking Hulk Hogan. I mean, shoot, you could do, there could be a, a, an almond butter tattooed, <laughs> the, joy, the Joyce's. Almond butter tattoo. What if you got, what if you got the cartoon of me on you and oh. vice versa? And then we could like when we put our arms together, they like hug each yeah. other. Yeah, they're like buddies. Well, we've really brainstormed some really solid fucking ideas. Right some now, dude. solid stuff. Yeah, I think it's I will say great. this: I, I'm leaning towards coiled snake, and I'm very committed to doing this with you like soon, like within the next month. It'd be pretty awesome. Okay, I would love it. Um, okay, or I could, I maybe I can get the set list tattooed on me from S and M one and with no outlaw torn in there just for old time's sake. <laughs> Even though that I've been exonerated. Yeah, I mean I think that's been put to bed. But because here's the deal. Oh, it's been, yeah. Uh, and I said it on that episode, but I'll say it now because guess what, baby? We're in Tangent City. I don't know if anyone looked out the fucking windows in a minute, but <laughs> to your left you will see fucking Tangent motherfucking city. Also to your Downtown. right. Downtown. Also up and down and all around. Uh here's the deal. The only person who could free you from that prison cell was a member of the band. And they did. It was Lars. And they did. Yeah, he did it. He he it's amazing. It's like a Zelda game where like you're in the Forbidden Forest trying to find the Triforce and you have to mm-hmm. you have to, you know, drop the potion into the well. So many weird things had to have happened to unlock the power of that of that spell yeah. you were under. And Lars did it. I know, he did it for me. He 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 was he was like the end of Zelda where you finally meet Ganon. Right. And the Triforce is complete. I mean, it it really is probably one of the most amazing like inside things that's happened on the show, and I I hope I get to talk to him about it one day. That's all I hope. I know. I mean, I think Me he too. was kind of in on it. The, the more I think about it, the more like he's in on it. All right, Brandon, thank you for the email, homie, and uh, we will be keeping everyone updated on our tattoo ideas. Danny S says, "What's up, brothers? I was thinking to, uh, to the last episode and talk about Fixer." Plus the lists, this is when we were doing our top lists of the '90s. Got me thinking: What would a Metallica set list look like if it was played only for the Metal Up Your Podcast family? Oh, okay. He says, basically composed of songs that get given a lot of attention on Metal Up Your Podcast. Not necessarily only hits, since this isn't being played to nearly as broad of an audience. Here's what I think it would look like. So this is a a set list, and he says he tried to follow the loose worldwide template, which was 18 songs, three encore, first encore thrash, uh, and then in with a huge hit. Uh, He says, I also wanted to include a song from every album, just for my OCD sake. So here's his set list that's the Metal Up Your Podcast Metallica set list. Okay. Opening with Blackened and the Moth, 
Until It Sleeps, Disposable Heroes, Carpe Diem Baby, No Leaf Clover, Astronomy, debut of Astronomy, Halo on Fire, Dirty Window, I'm backing all this, Call of Cthulhu, Four Horsemen, My Friend of Misery, The Unforgiven Trilogy. Yes, places, man. And then for the encore, My Apocalypse, love it. Then Fixer, debut. Love it. Then Creep, Creeping Death. Debut. Um, the, de- the debut of Creeping the Death. Debut. You know, it's been too long. Yeah, they, they should finally play one of their greatest songs. He says, obviously, there's a lot of other songs that could be included. I'd love to hear what you guys think, what you change, maybe even your own list. Much love from Chicago, New Jersey, Danny. Well, Danny, I think you hit it out of That's the park cool. of the list. I'm, I'm trying, I mean, maybe some Judas Kiss in there. What about, what? what's a song for in your world that maybe isn't represented here? Maybe Orion. Uh, Orion, Orion for Orion, you. Yeah. Oh, and Dire Eve sure. for you. That's a big one for yeah. you. Um, Struggle Within is a big one for you. Yeah, love it. I'm just, I've really, I really know your Metallica uh, IQ, bro. <laughs> well, I mean, he only put, let's see, there's only what, one song from the Black Album on this list? Looks Unforgiven like. and My Friend Unforgiven, of Misery. Unforgiven, yeah, too, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but, but still, I mean, 18 song set curated for the Middle Podcast family. That's a good, that's a good set list. I would, if they played that, I would freak out. Freak out. Freak out. Okay, one more email, and then we're Last off the race. Email here. from Cyrus. We haven't heard from Cyrus in a while. Okay, uh, at least haven't read one on the show. Uh, hey, Clint, and Ethan, question for you: In building my record player station, I realized that I should get a pair of over-ear studio headphones. Don't want to blast out my wife with all the music. LOL. <laughs> that means laugh out loud for all you people. M A O O M G. Looking on Amazon, there are a billion different brands and models. They all have a million ratings, and all the ratings are generally good. Is there a brand and style that you would recommend? Thanks for any help. I want some good ones to listen to that new Lunar Satan vinyl with. Merry Christmas. Nice. Hope all is well. Cyrus from Durango, Colorado, New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, if you can't tell, we're like extremely backed up on emails. A little bit. Yeah. Um, we are we do we do read them all and we are like answering all of them and trying to get them on the show. But um yeah. uh I think you and I use the exact same headphones, which are the Shure SR what are they? What are the model model SR one twelve. Let me just take mine something. off and look. Oh yeah, you have them on your head right now. They're SRH four forty. Those are great. They're you can probably find them used even if you if that's cool with you, but brand new, I think they're what, a hundred bucks about? They're like a hundred bucks, but yeah, I think I got, I think I found mine on Reverb for like maybe 80 E. Yeah. I, I have three of them. I've never paid more than a hundred bucks for those. And they're great. I mean, you know, it's like anything. You can find headphones that are a thousand dollars. You can find headphones that are 1500 bucks. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it depends on what your budget is, obviously. And then what kind of experience you want. Yeah. And those headphones are very solid. They're, they're, they're very, like it, when we say the term flat, Meaning they're going to be very true to what you're listening to. They're not like Beats by Dre that that aren't bad, but those are very catered towards the lo- very bass, yeah, bass low end and high end. Like like I mean, they were originally I would I think created for mostly like listening to hip hop and rap, which is awesome. But if you listen to something that you know maybe in the metal world might not sound that great on beats, so these these ones are awesome. And and, and we don't in, aren't endorsed by Sure, just so you know. I would like to yeah. be. We just like them. We just like the products. That's it. Yeah. Um, and that's it. It's easy as that. Metal Up Your Podcast Show at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Write in. Tell us your stuff. Tell us your story. Ask us any questions. Uh, Metallica, Tangent City, whatever. We're cool with it, with all of it. And um, let's take a break. Hear a Patreon commercial. And uh, we'll introduce you to Kevin. And then uh, we'll get into it. All right. 
Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon. For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free downloads of every cover our world black and ep ticket giveaways for shows like snm2 and slain castle box sets rare vinyl metallica memorabilia like snm2 guitar picks email priority meaning we'll read your email first on the show the chance to ask guests like hailstorm jay weinberg of slipknot and metallica row crew your very own questions and the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our metal tales bonus episodes in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past. All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you, and to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios. <laughs> We are here with our guest, Kevin Erickson, all the way from Washington, D.C. Kevin is the director of the Future of Music Coalition. Thank you for taking the time, Kevin, to hang out with us today. It's good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm telling you, I thought for a second, I've been wanting to talk to you since I found you on Twitter. I don't remember how that happened. Someone retweeted you. It was during the DMCA issue with Metallica and Twitch, which we will get into and just... So discouraged and even mildly shocked at the amount of disinformation surrounding that issue. Uh, and your tweets were just like a breath of fresh air. It was like clean water in a, in a, in a goddamn desert. Um, but as you, <laughs> and I, you. as you and I have been trying to find a good time to link up, we've been sort of beset by a few weeks of uh, scheduling conflicts. And I did think, well, if there are music gods and they're, and they're not kind gods, they are wanting to keep us apart, but we prevailed today, didn't we? We made it work. We are making it happen. We're making it work despite their best efforts. So tell our listeners kind of briefly what the Future of Music Coalition is and what you do there. Yeah, so Future of Music Coalition is a nonprofit organization based in D.C. that does research, advocacy, and education work for musicians and music communities aiming towards a future where diverse creative expression is able to thrive in a way that benefits music creators, but it also benefits music listeners. Primarily, we look at federal policy and law and business structures and try and figure out what kinds of policies and business models can help facilitate that kind of future. So sometimes we work on issues that you'd imagine would be part of that, like copyright, licensing, technology, but we also, we take a pretty broad view. So we're also talking about access to health insurance. We're talking about uh, antitrust policy. We're talking about net neutrality. We're talking about arts funding generally and how to both increase the level of government support for the arts, but also make sure that it's not just going to the sort of traditional big ballets and symphony orchestras and stuff, but like how to represent the full diversity of creative work that's happening. So it's, you know, we're a small organization and it's a big portfolio, but uh, we've been able to get a lot of stuff done over the course of uh, 20 years now. I've been with the organization for nine years, and I think this is just a really, obviously a really pivotal time for this kind, kind of work because there's so much, 
you know, musicians, musicians are workers. And so many of the things that they've experienced as workers are things that are happening in the rest of the economy as well, sort of the canary in the coal mine. And so by focusing on the experience of musicians navigating a changing industry, a changing legal and policy and business environment, we're also able to sort of look at some of the broader social inequities that are implicated as well. It's just so refreshing to hear that people out there care about this kind of thing. Ethan and I, you know, we do this Metallica podcast. That's the primary focus, but that's our job. Our job is as touring musicians and has been for 15, 20 years. And so we've, it's a thread of our show a lot. We talk a lot about the issues that are relevant to what you do. So hopefully we can use our time wisely today and tangle some of that. I'm struck by it being 20 years old, uh, you know, almost 20 years to this year is Metallica's controversy with Napster. Yeah. Although some of what we're going to talk about with this Twitch issue predates that, right? The DMCA. Correct. So before we start to dig into that, we were talking about this a little bit before air, but the discrepancy between the, the policies and the facts of all these issues what would you say the discrepancy is between the truth of it and what the public's perception is? It seems to me that people are mostly a little confused about a lot of these issues. Oh, yeah. Music is really interesting in that the general population is really interested in how it's made, where it comes from. It's really interested in the conditions of its production and distribution and in a way that they're maybe not as interested in like where our iPhones are put together or how our tomatoes are grown. And yet at the same time, there is a broad level of misinformation about how the music industry works and what the day-to-day realities are like. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think on, I mean, with issues that start to get involved with copyright, I think there's a lot of reasons that like the system, the copyright systems are so complex and the conversations about copyright policy can be really binary and simplistic. And, you know, part of that is because there's just like being able to understand what's going on requires a level of complexity and background knowledge that a lot of people don't have. Yeah, you have to be a lawyer to you have to have gone to yeah. undergrad law school to even understand why you know you shouldn't proliferate music on Napster or whatever for example. Well, I sometimes think of it as like analogous to professional sports, like to understand the rules of football takes a lot of time and a lot of investment of brain power, but then once you've invested that brain power, you can kind of get it and there's not the same kind of incentives for everybody to understand this stuff because you don't need to know all that stuff to be able to enjoy music, to be able to make music, to be able to be a fan. And then the complexity itself, the laws that govern copyright and music licensing have been built up over time, over periods of decades and decades. And part of why they're so unnavigable is because it's just like things built on things, built on other things. It's not like the way that you would design it if you were designing it from scratch. So I sort of think of it like navigating the subway in New York. Like if you were going to design a transportation for New York City from scratch and didn't have to worry about the existing infrastructure, you could probably come up with something that's a lot more navigable and a lot less like difficult to find your way around. But nobody has that option. People can only sort of work with the, the reality that's in front of it and try and make it easier to navigate 
as it exists right now, to try and make changes to make it simpler and easier and more effective where you can. But the level of baseline complexity is just there. It's the reality. Yeah. And so like until maybe even sort of DMCA type stuff, which I want to get into what that is, the music business is operating on copyright laws that are decades old and and maybe could never have even predicted something like music living in a cloud. Right, right. right. Technology is always advancing. And part of how technology works is that you can't anticipate what's going to happen. You can't anticipate business developments. You can't anticipate um, how things are going to interact with policy environments. The DMCA now is like 23, 24 years old now. And there are elements of it that are still really important and elements that maybe are need to be updated for the reality as things actually shook out. So the DMCA is, is an acronym for the Digital Millennial Copyright. Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Yep. And its its origins are, I think, date back to 98, right? And it's basically to protect copyrighted content on the internet as the internet began to become more ubiquitous, I guess. It goes back even a little further. So in 1996... Uh, some treaties were passed internationally by the the what's called WIPO, the World International Property Organization, and the signatory countries, including the United States, after a treaty is passed, they have to go implement those treaties by passing laws in their own countries. Uh, the goal of those treaties in '96 was to make copyright law as relatively consistent around the world as possible in dealing with some of these new digital internet issues and copyright. And so the DMCA was the United States' attempts to implement those treaties in 1996. Now, it went a little further than that. It, it created some additional provisions as well. And one of those was a liability exemption. It exempted uh, internet companies from liability. So the companies aren't responsible for what users do, but enable, in order to be able to enjoy that limitation on liability, they have to adhere to certain guidelines. It's kind of a bargain. They have to hold up the, their end to be able to not get sued when their users put up allegedly infringing material. They have to police it and perhaps even take it down, or but they have to monitor it. And yeah, so they have to block access to alleged infringing material when they receive a notice of a claim from a copyright holder. Sometimes the artist, sometimes the record label, sometimes the publisher. They call this the notice and takedown process. Is that kind of like a in a way, kind of like a cease and assist for that era? Kind of, yeah. And the idea was that it would sort of balance the rights and interests of different kind of stakeholders in a way that lead to sort of an optimal outcome where freedom of expression is preserved, but the sort of economic welfare of the creative industries is also preserved. And then in that way, the idea was that it would align the incentives so the companies would have a reason to do the right thing. But then I guess the trouble, the, some of the trouble with it, right, is that people were being falsely flagged for DMCA violations. And I know a lot of content makers were pretty upset about and are upset about the state of DMCA culture. Well, yeah. I mean, when they put this law together, they were trying to proactively, on some level, predict what the state of the internet was going to look like. And 
the thing about the internet is it offers both promise and peril for musicians. So the promise is like more competition, easier communication from creators and listeners. It makes it easier to, to reach fans. You're not dealing with some of the bottlenecks that used to exist in the music industry in terms of limited shelf space at record stores or payola practices on uh, FM radio. Uh, and then the peril, of course, was unauthorized reproduction that creates this downward pressure on the value of recorded music. Uh, obviously, that's existed for a long time by bootlegs and other things. But the, what was new for was the, the potential for that to scale and to become a business model for companies that are not acting in good faith. The question that it makes me want to ask you, I have a very pessimistic view of a lot of this stuff that you will probably find out. I think Ethan and I are both because we're both just we don't know enough and we kind of see the negative out, outcomes of a lot of this. Do you think that when these laws are being put in place that they were they had the good intentions? I sort of have this uh, villainous idea of it that may not be accurate, where it, uh, people wanted to get in on the front end of this thing. They didn't know what it was, but it, it's hard for me to imagine it was motivated with people like me in mind to to profit from it. But it sounds like what you're saying is there were some pretty good intentions about really wanting to get this part of it right. I mean, I think that's true. And I think that there's different stakeholders are going to have different intentions and sometimes multiple kinds of intentions simultaneously. Mm -hmm. The challenges that we've seen, it is the case that the smaller stakeholders don't have as much leverage in the creation and the drafting and the passage of legislation. So it can be the case that larger companies, whether they're big record companies or big technology companies, can end up having an outsized role and then and and then it becomes the case that the laws and the systems that we have reflect their needs more than the, the little guys. But with I think that there were some real genuine like problem solving um, intentions behind this and a, and a, a genuine attempt to balance balance different stakeholder concerns in a genuinely like public interest way. Part of the problem has been that the volume of copyright infringement that was happening on the internet was larger than anticipated. And so it overwhelms these kinds of systems. And certainly it became more than what small artists or rights holders could keep up with. So on the artist side, it puts them in the, in the uncomfortable position of having to sort of police the internet for author, unauthorized uses of their work, which is just like a new form of uncompensated labor that they're being compelled to perform. And then at the same time, the systems are sort of being built in ways that benefit the services and there's the services sort of preferred partners the most. And so there are problems of things being incorrectly flagged. We call them like type one errors and type two errors. There's like the problem of something being incorrectly flagged, and then there's the problem of something that should be flagged not getting flagged. And there's a legal reason that this happened. And this is the part that that's most frustrating to me, because it was like the, the best intended thing about the original law in 1998, but it was never acted upon. There's a section of the DMCA 512I that was meant to create standard technical measures to make it easier to deal with these problems at scale and to make all of the tools available on a neutral and non-discriminatory basis. If you set up the system right, tiny little indie band gets the same suite of tools as Universal Music Group, that everybody's sort of playing the same rules, uh, the same rule book, 
What's happened instead is that 512i was never implemented because they haven't been able to get the companies to come to the table and adopt and form common ground on what those standard technical measures would look like. And instead, they've made like their own proprietary anti-infringement systems that sort of happen outside of that. YouTube's is con called Content ID, for example. Uh, but it's not made available on that neutral and non-discriminatory basis. It just has to be good enough <laughs> that they keep the um, that they have to continue to uh, abide by the notice and takedown process when they get those notices and takedowns. But the sort of automated systems that happen outside of that process just have to be good enough that it keeps the biggest rights holders from suing them. And effectively, what that means is that the smaller artists and rights holders don't have effective control over their work. And we've argued that this has interfered both with their ability to make a living and limited the ways in which they can reach audiences. And then the same thing is true on the user side. People making videos or doing Twitch streams, things are getting flagged incorrectly, in part because these automated systems are not being built with basic principles of treating everybody fairly and treating everybody the same in, in mind. And again, that's just because we never implemented that section of the law, 512i, uh, that would create sort of standard rules of the road for every service, for every yeah. rights holder. That almost seems like that should have been step one. Like, Yeah, but you're saying you can't get these big companies to the table. You know, They're not incentivized to yeah. level the playing field. And it just seems like a big hill to climb. And I definitely want to talk about a bigger picture idea of we're just really lucky that a lot of our listeners really care about this issue. It's because it's so close to what Ethan and I do. And uh, it's strange cross sections with Metallica, of course. But I definitely want to talk about user responsibility. Like the, the, because what a conversation we're hearing a lot in their feedback is, well, what are we supposed to do and how can we help? What's the best way to buy your music? What's the best way to support music? And yeah. I, I imagine you're going to have a lot of good insights into that. So you mentioned Twitch. And so here's was an interesting ironic day right in the world of music is metallica's performing online one of the broadcast outlets was twitch and twitch itself to avoid getting a dmca dubbed over metallica's music because of fear of copyright infringement so the big laughing stock that day right was twitch is censoring metallica playing their own music and then a lot of the uh, misinformation about Metallica's history with streaming and copywriting and Napster. So it was a big day to poke fun at Metallica, right? It, some people saw it as karma uh, 20 years later coming to you know kick them in the ass because they started, the, people think that Metallica started all this. So how did that day unfold for you? Are you aware of Metallica's world or did that just sort of come into your radar because oh, of the DMCA I mean issue? Obviously, uh, I mean, everybody knows about Metallica. <laughs> they're, they're huge, <laughs> really important, and one of the most major forces in American rock music broadly, but also in music policy debates back to the, the Napster stuff and, and beyond. So when I talked before about how, how things get polarized really quickly, what, what happens when something like this breaks in the news is that people sort of go straight to their entrenched positions. And one of right. them is just like, everybody's mad at the DMCA, but they don't necessarily understand why the problems in the DMCA ex exist. They sort of blame the law itself rather than companies' implementation of the DMCA. And then they also go to this place that like, the copyright, copyright law is out of control. And that is 
the framing that we apply to copyright that I think we all need to get away from is thinking about it in terms of less copyright versus more copyright. The idea that there's one side of the debate that's about fighting for more and longer terms and bigger, more more aggressive protection. And then on the other side, it's like trying to weaken copyright, shorter terms, less uh, enforcement, fewer. Um, like for us, it's sort of like what we need isn't more or less copyright. We just need better implementation of copyright law, laws that are more nuanced and balanced and effective that actually work for different kinds of stakeholders. And there's a messaging problem too. I, yeah. I think that's however the the sausage is being made, whoever it can get to, I, I think the messaging could be cleared up for people who really, because I do think that one of the reasons people do get polarized, Kevin, is like, I think people really care. I mean, I think people really want to be on the right side of, you know, we've got listeners who are like, I don't want to feel bad about Spotify. I love music, you know, and we're, we as the artists are saying, yeah, but we're just not, we're not really benefiting from that. And so people really care. They want to do the right thing. The messaging, I think, has got to get a little clearer around the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, that goes back to the Napster stuff as well. When the labels, I mean, there's a difference between suing a big for-profit company that's exploiting your work and then what some of the major labels did, which was go after individual fans and individual users. And a lot of the, mm -hmm. um, some of the toxic aspects to these debates, I think, go back to that moment but on, right. the, on the on the day of like this blizzcon thing so that is something that i that was not in my world at all so blizzcon apparently is an event that's put on by this video game company it's uh, blizzard entertainment they do warcraft and diablo and games like that and they have this big event which is like mostly a news event about their new products and stuff but then they have other kinds of entertainment and stuff um they simulcast it this year on their website and on Twitch and on YouTube. And uh, as far as we can tell, they did arrange for the appropriate licensing for Mentalic's performances to be on their website and on YouTube and on Blizzard Entertainment's Twitch stream. But the stream on Twitch was aggregated and picked up by the general Twitch video game channel stream, which reaches a broader audience. And it may be the case that they that the licensing that was obtained didn't cover that broader audience. And so it just like it triggers everybody's notion that like, oh, the DMCA is just out of control. Right. And then plus it just happened to be fucking Metallica. It was like, yeah. oh, of all the bands, you know? Yeah. And, and and I think going back to Lars's Senate testimony, people have sort of, I would say unfairly, really made villains out of them. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when even if you go back and read the testimony, what he's actually saying is totally sensible. And it's like, it's much more about control and about creative control than it is about money. money it's, yeah. it's very sensible stuff that he was saying. Right. When people confuse the DMCA itself with particular companies' choices about how to implement the DMCA, that works to the benefit of a company like Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. Their decisions end up escaping scrutiny. Right. And like one of the problems is that Amazon just hasn't wanted to pay for blanket licensing for music on that platform the way that some of his competitors have, have done. And it's that decision that leads to stuff getting taken down. It, like 
Jeff Bezos is worth like $200 billion. Like Twitch can afford to pay for music licensing. It was one of your tweets that I really, it really struck me as you said, which by the way, everyone needs to go follow this Twitter account. It's just daily updates and conversational threads about all of these issues. I highly recommend it. What's the handle over there, Kevin? Oh, thanks for plugging it. It's future underscore of underscore music. And we'll put the links in this description. But one of the things you tweeted recently is you said, you know, when we get when we get bogged down in the minutia of this stuff over here, what it's really doing sometimes nefariously is giving cover to the big corporations who are kind of getting away with they're really the culpable ones, but they're sort of being able to skirt under the controversy, right? Yeah, well, services have to get licenses if they want to use music. Um, and so they negotiate with rights holders and with sometimes with performing rights organizations like ASCAP and BMI. Um, in some cases, they can pay for a statutory license or use a government set uh, rate. And then there's fair use, which doesn't need a license. Mm. But there's this downward pressure on the price that all creators get paid for music that comes from this dysfunction in the way the DMCA is currently operating. And that impacts the licensing negotiations. And the platforms have an, an incentive to pay as little in royalties as they possibly can, because it's an expense and it cuts into their profitability. And so they're balancing that against like, okay, when does having a licensed music actually help grow the user base? And when does when does it cut into profitability? And so when people look at this and understand it poorly, it it sort of it leaves them thinking that every everything is just this result of this dumb law that they don't like but don't fully understand. And then like music industry is just greedy and this is all so messed up. And it does distract us from the actual state of power relations, where Amazon is 20 times the size of the entire recorded music business. So when people get mad at the DMCA and the greedy music industry and don't get mad about Amazon's failure to implement it correctly, which is the entire reason that this happened, right. it improves Amazon's bargaining position, these licensing negotiations, and it also poisons the well in the policy conversation makes it much more difficult to achieve any kind of needed reforms. I find that insight so the clarity and the incision of that is just so important. It really can't be oh, overstated. I really appreciated that. It's just so true. And you talk a lot about transparency with these companies as well that I you know we can maybe talk about that coming up too. So so sure. the so the thing with Twitch and the DMCA, any further implications of that in terms of Metallica, that was just a, a news cycle that day. It was ironic because it was Metallica. Well, and it's funny because people wrongly blame Metallica for the DMCA. And the DMCA was passed in 1998. Right. Metallica's lawsuit against Napster wasn't until 2000. They don't have anything to do with the existence of the DMCA. Did Metallica, I guess we can move into Napster a little bit. Did Metallica use DMCA laws in the Napster, in their case? Was DMCA culture or part, sort of part of what they were trying to do? I think that it probably implicated Article 1 of the DMCA, which is completely separate from all of the stuff about notice and takedown. Right. But I think it probably had implications for other other unrelated parts of the law, but nothing nothing about... Actually, I would have to double check that. <laughs> but I think <laughs> it's been a long time since I have, you know... Napster's 20 years ago. So, sure. so, but I think there would be at least some portions of the law that were implicated. Well, in that. and a lot of the, I mean, you've already sort of intimated a little bit, but like the idea that what Lars was really saying was pretty reasonable. It was about artistic control. They didn't need the fucking money. 
And a lot of what they were advocating for were bands that couldn't afford to take on a corporation like Napster. Just all of the narratives that were convenient that Napster mm-hmm. was like, a, you know, that Napster wasn't a corporation that was making money, that Metallica sued their fans. We untangled all of that in our Napster episode, but uh-huh. it is interesting that in 2000, it seemed like Lars in particular had a bit of a prescient vision for how this might unfold for artists. And it does seem like, you know, there's a kind of a meme goes around the Metallica world. It's hashtag Lars was right, you know, but yeah, uh, I've seen the t-shirts too. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're right. I mean, he, I don't think to this day, I think for a lot of people, I mean, you'll even still see it in YouTube comments in 2021 when they play inner Sandman on the Kimmel show, you'll see people upset about 20 years ago. And it just seems like, they were on the right track with it for sure. It's it's such a strange thing that Metallica was at such a centerpiece of the issue. And I guess they'll forever be part of the conversation, you know? Well, I, I mean, I think that from today's vantage point, we can see a few things, but there were some concerns about control and also just about corporate accountability that were coming from the Metallica camp. And those were really valid. And at the same time, the music community wasn't all on the same page about what they thought about peer-to-peer file sharing. And that was because at the time there were some real challenges with gatekeeper issues in the music industry. It was very, what was exciting about the internet at that time was that it was going to potentially create new avenues to bypass those gatekeepers. Because it was just, you know, like if you don't have radio airplay and don't have MTV and don't have the ability to get your stuff on the shelf at the record store, how are you supposed to reach fans? And so there was some real excitement about the disintermediation that was going on. And I think that 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 was pretty valid, Mm -hmm. too. That was Chuck D's big argument. So Charlie Rose had Lars and Chuck D on his show. And Ch- I thought I thought Chuck D made a really compelling argument for exactly what you're saying, Kevin, about like, this is actually giving power back to artists. It's taking power away from gatekeepers. It's giving it's the, a direct line from the artist to the fan and all. And, and I think even Lars does a good job answering it. But he's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not arguing with any of that. I think Chuck D called Napster the new radio. Well, I mean, that's true also in the sense that radio still doesn't pay musicians in the United States. Right. <laughs> Just another, we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of where, where you know, looking back on the on those debates from the vantage point of 20 years later, I think that there's underlying both sides is a concern about corporate accountability and large corporations' ability to get in between musicians and their fans and potential fans. We talk about the two major things that musicians need are the ability to reach audiences in ways that make sense for them and the ability to be fairly and sustainably compensated whenever their work is used. And then they end up working with a variety of business partners in pursuit of those goals. An analytical mistake that a lot of early internet enthusiasts missed was the potential for those new internet companies and internet platforms to themselves end up being a new level of gatekeeper and replicating some of the same exploitative dynamics that past music industry structures had baked into them. There was this fantasy that it was going to topple all of the gatekeepers and 
obviously that that hasn't played out the way that we thought it would. You know, and I think there was also this line of thinking that the only way to beat Napster is to have a licensed Napster, something that shares some of the core attributes of that model, but is legal and licensed and pays somehow. And people people came up with a variety of ideas. Some of them were utopian and pie in the sky, like an, an ISP levy where you pay a music fee as part of your internet access fee, and that somehow gets divided up to musicians. That was an idea that was floated in those early 2000s. And, and now people, some people think of Spotify as that way. Like the only way to beat Napster is to have a licensed Napster. That's basically what Spotify is trying to be. It's free to users and it's got all the music in the world. Well, obviously Spotify is not working for a lot of musicians. So <laughs> yeah, it seemed like in the early 2000s that iTunes was kind of like a really good answer because it wasn't this is you know pre obviously spotify and apple music and all that stuff it seemed like a good idea you're you're selling a digital copy of record for essentially what it is in a store as a, for a physical copy or a little less and i can speak as a very small independent solo artist who have had music online since 2013 that's where i've made most of my money yeah i've been on spotify for seven years and i think i've made like 300 dollars. you know and so I got, I remember getting really excited about iTunes and then especially when it became easy to get your own music on there where before you'd have to go through your label and all this stuff and independent artists had to, you know, sign up for some service to do it. And now we have stuff like DistroKid that, you know, you can get on your stuff everywhere easy. Um, and it, you know, in one way I was really bummed out when all of a sudden iTunes was becoming less and less and less and then streaming, you know, and now we have this whole generation of kids that like my, you know, nieces and nephews that are just like Spotify is, is that's to them. That's what CDs and vinyl was to us. That that's just normal to them now. Oh, I can listen to it for free. Yeah. There's a whole issue with, I mean, we could obviously probably do a whole podcast on that as well, but a whole issue. I mean, I, <laughs> I frame it as like the spiritual issue with all of this, where you're getting out of touch with physical, you're a physical connection to the music you love. Um, but that's almost a whole separate deal. But yeah, and I guess my point uh, really, I started just going on a tangent a, a bit. But uh, you okay? I guess Ethan. my point was it's, it's a safe it place. Seemed... I know we're in a safe place. <laughs> we're good. Kevin's got a leak scratch Perry poster. I feel great. <laughs> um, but it, it seemed like for a minute, iTunes was the answer. You know, because it's like okay, well here's here's this new digital world of you know file sharing. Um, but then here's iTunes where it's like, okay, I can, I can support the artists at a normal price, you know, and still own a digital copy of music. But I mean, I think at that point, the Pandora's box, which just opened massively with things like Napster and LimeWire. Yeah. I, th I think, I mean, Apple certainly kept the lights on at a lot of independent labels for, you know, a decade. iTunes, there were a lot of things that are great about it. The fact that the deals were consistent that they were paying out basically 70% of revenue to everybody and it wasn't going to vary on the basis of different kinds of deals being offered to, to different kinds of entities. There were probably some little things around the margin, but at the basic level of what compensation looks like, that was that level of straightforwardness and transparency was helpful. There was also a critique of iTunes, I think, that, well, it is problematic that it's creating this relationship of dependence with this one giant hardware and software company. Yeah. Because when there's a relationship of dependence with one platform like that, they have the sort of 
ability to unilaterally make changes that impact the, the entire industry. And then they did, right? Well, they did, and they they did under the influence of some competitive developments that were happening in other places in the, the industry and figuring out how to compete with the offerings of companies like Spotify and certainly YouTube that are offering free listening. Apple still has resisted the free tier. There isn't a free option for Apple Music. And in that way, on a rate basis, this that allows them to end up paying more than Spotify or other similar similarly situated services. I would say broadly, their privacy policies and things are better than a lot of digital music entrants. They're actually selling music. They're not using mu- they're using music in part maybe to help sell their hardware and and other stuff, but they're not using music to create a data surveillance operation. Right. To in order to sell you other shit or to turn you and the the user into a product is what you're saying, right? Right. Or to sort of pull like they're pulling you to some degree into Apple's ecosystem, but they're not they're not using music to attract you to like sell ads for something else. Right, right. Man. Ugh. I hate all that. Jesus. <laughs> So okay, so let's right. let's let's maybe break this down into two things as we as we head towards the end a little bit. What can we tell people like our listeners who love music? We've all bought all of our Metallica albums ten times each. We buy the tickets, we support them, but we a lot of our listeners love independent artists. What's the most ethically responsible way for music lovers to get music now in this landscape it's going to depend so much on the individual artist and what the structure of their deals and their business that they're like you have there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer right right i'm curious about this i have this perception that this is a question that the the metal fandom i guess is more interested in than other kinds of music listeners is Hmm. that is that your perception as well i've actually never thought about that um i would guess off the top of my head that yes, I do think there's a fidelity and a loyalty within more underground hard rock communities than maybe your average Beyonce or Billie Eilish fan. I think, and I think that's probably because the fans aren't young people who just have grown up expecting free music. We remember when, you know, I think older folks remember a time when you had to trade something for music. And I think we understand that the trade for that is part of what makes you enjoy it and relish it. It costs you something. I think when you just when you're a kid, like Ethan is talking about his nephews, you know, and my daughter's six, she'll have to just figure all this out. But I mean my daughter listens to cassette tapes. She has a cassette tape in her room and I make her mixtapes because I'm wary of all this. But I think that hard rock fans are a little older. They appreciate the value of it. It hasn't been uh, commodified in a way that it has for pop music and younger fans. And the industry that I mostly work in is country music. And country music fans are an interesting group of people. They, uh, they're beautiful people, but they, uh, they don't listen to records really, and they don't really have um, the loyalty to an artist the way that a Metallica fan might. They, they really dislike what's on the radio. They like what the hits are. They like the flashy new names, and they just like the culture of country music. Whereas someone who likes Cannibal Corpse or Metallica or whatever. They tend to go deep. They tend to really feel invested in the music. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, I, I certainly get the sense that like merchandise, like we've done a little bit of research on into artist revenue streams and find like the, 
like merch sales are a bigger component for touring metal bands than they are for country artists, for mm, example. Interesting. I mean, I would say that I do talk about Bandcamp a lot because I think that's uh, a model that's able to produce meaningful revenue for artists who are not working with mass scale assumptions about the size of their audiences and it's not it's not a platform that's perfect for everybody but it's it has both the sort of democratization of access but it also allows you to price things in the way that you feel like pricing them it isn't one size fits all and it has good integration with physical merchandise as well if that's that's something that you want to do so uh you know we're not in the business of endorsing companies but there are choices that that company made about how it was going to develop its business model and how they continue to relate to the artist community that are pretty distinct from the ways that companies that are more wall street driven like like spotify and like sirius xm are going to make their choices but i i do think it's a really helpful thing for consumers fans listeners to just be in the habit of asking artists like what is what is the most helpful thing for you because the answer that they're going to get is going to be different from artist to artist right first for one artist it might be well if you're going to if you really love the album it you're going to get me on a playlist if you listen to it on spotify if it gets enough spotify lists it might get playlisted and that's going to crack open the door on my exposure someone like ethan or i or i usually drive people to Bandcamp. i know you can't endorse anyone kevin but that's usually what i tell people because you can buy my physical media you can stream it they do these Fridays where they don't even take their cut of it. As a listener, I love it too because you can like I, I buy a lot of physical media on Bandcamp and then it shows up in my Bandcamp player, so I've got it on my phone. Right. I'm on I'm on the go. I was just gonna you know more love to Bandcamp just I mean because even before I signed up for DistroKid to get stuff on digital platforms like that, I mean Bandcamp was like one of the first spots for me as a independent artist to put my stuff up. You know even just at the free version, you know, it's like they take their cut. That's great. But it's like, I, I tell people all the time, like, yeah, if you want to do iTunes, that's great. But I personally prefer Bandcamp. I put more music than I, I do on there than other pr- platforms. And like Clint said, you know, you can offer your merch and stuff on there. So it's kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of, a lot of cool artists and a great, a great site to discover new, new bands. Oh yeah, totally. The, there's a curation aspect of Bandcamp. That's pretty cool. That doesn't feel to me, um, the, the algorithmic type, shit happening on spotify and that's one of the reasons people say they like it they're like well that's how i discover music and it's like well i i, I like being surprised and I, I i don't think that the algorithms really have me down i know that you know i mean some of my favorite bands were bands that i don't think a robot could have figured out for me but you've also talked kevin uh in your twitter threads about Bandcamp's transparency which i really yeah. appreciated as well you know, they, they're letting you see kind of how the sausage is made more than some of these other companies, which makes me trust them more. Yeah, all the deals are on the table. All the terms are straightforward. There isn't any element of, to the extent that there's recommendation on Bandcamp, it's because, one, they hire editorial staff that just writes about music that they are interested in and passionate about, and it is not influenced by any commercial deals that they have with any rights holder. You know, on on services like Spotify and and other more Wall Street driven, I guess, digital services, there can be things baked into the licensing deals where in exchange for maybe a lower rate of compensation, there's like extra promotional push baked into these deals. And so that sort of distorts 
you know, instead, a listener doesn't have any way of knowing whether what they're getting recommended is the result of a curatorial choice by a human or an algorithmic prediction of like, this is the thing that we actually think that you're going to like the most, or whether it's just being boosted as a result of one of these commercial deals. And on, and on Bandcamp, that's not a factor. The other, the other form of recommendation that happens on Bandcamp is just straightforwardly, people who bought this record also bought these other records. And you can sort of, mm-hmm. you know, it happens in sort of an organic way that, that suggests different kinds of connections and things. So there's great stuff about that. And some of that is things that can be resolved in uh, policy environments as well. You know, like when I'm talking about algorithmic recommendation that happens on stuff like Spotify as a result of commercial deal, it's, and it's not certainly, Spotify was not the first to do this one, far from the only one. But if that was happening on radio, that would be a violation of the payola laws on radio. And unfortunately, the FCC, which governs radio, doesn't have jurisdiction over these digital services. So to get that changed, we're going to have to ask another agency, the Federal Trade Commission, to to crack down on that practice, which is going to be something that we're going to be doing this this spring. It doesn't have to be that way. Like all of these systems are a result of business choices and policy choices. Do you get a lot of pushback? I mean, you guys are obviously advocating for a lot of change, and there are people that maybe. <laughs> aren't excited that you guys are knocking at the door. I mean, how, how has your relationship been with some of the policymakers trying to move the ball forward in this way? There are folks that are going to listen to us and there are folks that are not going to listen to us. And so as a small organization, we spend most of our time talking to the folks that we know are going to listen to us and equipping them with the, the tools and resources so they know how to move the ball forward in the right way and they know how we're actually impacted. We'll talk to anybody. Yeah, you're talking to metal up your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You agreed to come on our show, of course. But, you know, like something that's unique about copyright policy, too, is that it doesn't necessarily break down on a left-right basis. Right, yes. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. And so there are opportunities for real problem-solving and common ground, even at times where Congress is more broadly deadlocked. But, you know, there's certainly... The current that we're sort of swimming against is several decades of deregulation, of weakening consumer protections, weakening labor protections for all kinds of workers, including musicians, weakening the rules that govern broadcasting, the rules that... So we're in a moment where some of those things can change, and so we can start to turn the tides on some of those things, and they're some, you know, in some degrees, they already are, but we're, we are up against several decades of neoliberalism. Well, before I ask you the big kahuna question, which is what the hell's going to happen? What is the future of music? Which I'm sure you're you have a very clear, concise elevator pitch for that. It's not at all a nuanced question, but how can we help what you do? What are some easy ways that we can help support the future of music coalition? Is it like a donation thing? Is it a spread the word thing? Yeah, those are both good. <laughs> uh, okay. we are we are I mean, we're a scrappy little nonprofit with a pretty small budget. And uh, so donations are super helpful and you can donate through our website. Sign up for our email list so you can find out about uh, action alerts and uh, opportunities to weigh in uh, with different kinds of policymakers. Spread the word. Absolutely. Those are great ways to help. Because policy is changing and moving so fast, I can't even really anticipate what the ask is going to be a month from now, two weeks from now. Sure. There are opportunities. There's going to be a lot of opportunities with with new leadership in a new administration and 
new congressional leadership to move the ball the right direction. That's encouraging. So the future of music. So for those of us who all, you know, music is such a huge part of our lives and we haven't even really talked about it. But in addition to the work you do uh, up there in D.C., you're also a producer and an engineer. And, yeah. You know, guitar player. I mean, you, you know, you're as heavily invested in it as we are and a lot of our listeners are. So what's going to happen? Are we totally fucked or what? What's <laughs> Are we the lost generation where the people in the future, it's going to take them 20 years to realize that, uh, you know, there's going to be a gap where artists couldn't survive and we let robots make music and we thought that was going to be cheap and uh, sufficient. And then we realized 20 years too late that we got to start investing in the arts again or Ethan and I doomed. <laughs> I'm mostly joking, Kevin. I'm not trying to put all that on you, but how, are you optimistic? I mean, what do you think? When you start talking about the future of music, people often expect us to offer like predictions about the future. And, and for us, it's much more about taking an active role in shaping the future. And because like we have agency as musicians, as music fans, as music listeners, as citizens, we have agency over all these systems and we just have to exercise it and hold people accountable. And then we get to decide what the future is going to look like. And I'm optimistic about that. I'm always optimistic about that because there's as cynical as I can be about government and some of the things that happen in this town, there are a lot of people who are, who like work on the hill and work at different federal agencies that love music and genuinely want to see music creators thriving. And they don't always know how to help. And they are they're the range of actions that are available to them are constrained by a variety of factors. But the enthusiasm is there. And this is a moment where a lot of the old consensus is starting to fall away. And we can kind of get real about what's actually happened in a way that, you know, some of the techno-utopian ideas of the 2000s have fallen by the wayside as we've sort of seen the darker side of centralized power in technology companies. And so that's opening the door for new forms of regulation that can meaningfully contest their power. And that's not just technology companies either. It's like the whole musicians have experienced ownership consolidation in every part of their business and every adjacent business and in recorded and live and ticketing and broadcasting and distribution, the whole, all of it. But there are growing movements now to address these problems of centralized corporate power across the board. And there's a lot of momentum there right now. It's not just mm. in the music industry, it's economy-wide. There's a new level of awareness of the impact of centralized power on workers of all kinds, and musicians have a really a really exciting potential role to play in, in advancing that conversation as well. Who are some allies, or maybe um, do you, like the Bob Lefsetzes of the world, the Dave Lowry's, are there any books... What other resources can we point people towards who want to get more involved other than sign, signing up for your newsletter, of course? Oh, um, I mean, I can give book recommendations. There's one that I recommend to a lot of people by uh, a woman named Astra Taylor. It's called The People's Platform. I think the subtitle is Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. And it's a little older. It's 2014 that it came out. But it was really good at synthesizing the sort of history of what the power dynamics underlying the internet 
looked like and what can be done about it and laying out sort of a, a positive path forward. She's a she's an author, but also a filmmaker and also a musician. And so she's she's writing it from the perspective of folks who care about creativity and care about equity online. Awesome. So that's one place that I'd look. I think that organizations that are doing anti-monopoly organizing right now um, across the board and across industries is, is an exciting place to look. So folks like the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, like uh, the Open Markets Institute, like the American Economic Liberties Project, they are leading conversations on how to address these problems of centralized power in in a very direct way. For our last question, your top 35 Metallica songs. Oh, you know, <laughs> go, go ahead. I, 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 I don't know if I could do that off the top of my head, but I, I, I can put a plug in for my friend, Lori Goldston, who is an amazing cellist that I know from my time in the Pacific Northwest. She also uh, has played uh, with Earth and she was the touring cellist in Nirvana for a while. Played on the Unplugged record. People have probably heard her work, but she just put out this uh, cassette, which was a collaboration with Torben uh, Ulrich. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were they released it on cassette. They released it on. I believe the cassette is already sold out, but it's still oh, available man. on on Bandcamp and on the other digital services. She's she's an incredible incredible musician, and all of her work is 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 really special. But it's sort of a good gateway into her body of work. I think. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. so awesome. Yeah, man. yeah. Well, everyone, go check it out. Listen, Kevin. I and Ethan and our, our listeners are very grateful for the work you're doing. And uh, I'm really glad that our paths crossed on the internet out there and that you made the time to come on and clear some of this up for us and give us start to clear away a path out of all the bullshit, you know, for those of us who love music. So I very much appreciate you. I'm glad you're out there. Thanks so much. And, and I think it's what you guys are doing in terms of bridging these conversations is super, super important too. So Thanks, thanks for being interested in, in providing this platform in this context. Oh, yeah, anytime. And I really feel like uh, there's even more to cover. So we'd love to have you back on at some point. Absolutely. Happy to. Master! Master! Well, there you have it. Kevin Erickson, oh. the Future of Music Coalition. What a what a breath of fresh air. He was awesome. He's, uh, A, he's, he's in the sweetie pie category, of course. Totally. We don't, we don't really, uh, we, we don't cavort with anything less than sweetie pie in my opinion. Of course, yeah, for sure. But man, it was great to talk to him because even though we're, you know, professional musicians have been for a long time songwriters whatever, we deal with publishing all and all this kind of stuff and royalties and whatnot. I mean, there was so much stuff in there that he was he was dropping on us that I was like, "Oh my god, I didn't even realize that." You know, like there's so much happening and there's so much detail in depth with with the music world and royalties and publishing and uh, r- copyright use and all that stuff. That I was just I was just blown away. I was just like, I don't even want to ask a question. I just want to sit back and listen to this. Speaking of publishing, I re-signed my deal with Rough Trade. Congratulations! So thank you. Uh, I live to write professionally another day, and I write to live. <laughs> live to write, write to live. There's your tattoo right there. That wouldn't be okay. cheesy at all. Well, we appreciate all of you out there, you know, throughout the week, all of you who send us, you know, funny social media stuff or, or touching emails, mm-hmm. all of you who sort of keep the Metal Up Your Podcast community thriving right. 
it really means a lot to Ethan and I, and uh, the train the train rolls on, baby. It really does. And uh, and you guys that are on Twitter out there, please follow the Future of Music Coalition on Twitter. Yes. It's very insightful. I mean, they're posting stuff daily. Um, it's just very educational, especially like like you all are and we are. You're huge fans of music, and you know maybe wanting to find ways to get involved and uh, stuff like that. So. Yeah, check. There'll be links below in the description of this episode where you can <clears throat> you can donate to them if that's something that that uh, you feel convicted about. But you can also just sign up for their newsletter where they'll let you know how to get involved. You know sure. whether or not you need to help sign a petition, whether or not you need to if something's going on in your local city, um, any way that you can throw your weight into their cause, which their cause is again just to to uh to make awareness and education right. and to change policy in ways that put the artist first yes. it's very important work I'm it really is especially i mean the, i think one thing that's often forgotten in the music world is because the artists aren't put first in most cases if it wasn't for the artist there wouldn't be a music industry there yeah. wouldn't be record labels there wouldn't yeah. be all this stuff here's who comes first right now big corporations Here's what big corporations can't do. Make this fucking music. (laughs) Like we're making the music and we're the, we're treated like shit. Yeah. And so that has got to change. It has got to change. And the fact that just someone out there cares at this level, it really, it really means a lot to me. So thanks again to Kevin. And I think we're going to do future episodes with Kevin. I'd love to. Um, As, as, I mean, because this is an issue that unfolds, every month you know there's new mm-hmm. shit going on there's ways for it to get better oh yeah kevin feels optimistic about the future and uh that makes me optimistic <laughs> absolutely he's optimistic somebody so, else say they're optimistic please so again thanks to everyone out there for listening we will see you next week with our part two interview with the wonderful mike gillis if you would like to hear that early and support the show you're going to knock out two birds with one stone and you're going to sleep better at night you can support us on patreon p-a-t-r EON.com slash metal your podcast and good grief, Ethan. Let's get out of here. Please. Peace. Adios. If you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that. <laughs> ding dong ding. Dude, I, I listened to that whole tape, by the way. A yeah. couple days ago, when I, when I posted that video of me and the forerunner, I'm not going to lie, man. I didn't not enjoy it. There's some yeah. there's some cheesy, dated stuff on there for sure, but I'm like, dude, that motherfucker sure. can sing. Who doesn't want to hear that guy singing a song? He's like, he was like, he was like his time, his era's Michael Bublé. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Who doesn't, who doesn't want to, like, if Michael Bublé's on, it's Christmas time, who's turning that off? What sort of monster's turning that off?